We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Willers getting booking the guests. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks. In his 40th year in the media, loving life in 2023, here's Scott Thompson. There you go. This is Love and Life. It is Hamilton today. Great to have you along. Uh, we've talked about these uh, scams and, and situations many times. Um, and, and it, you know, it just keeps happening over and over again. So obviously more communication is the key here. And the more you get these stories out, uh, the more people will at least be aware uh, when something suspicious happens to them. But an online relationship left a Norfolk County resident in tears and out a tremendous amount of money yeah, in what pe- uh, police are calling a romance scam. Uh, the victim met the alleged scammer online in November of 2021 over the course of several emails, phone calls. The relationship deepened to the point that the scammer convinced the victim to spend money, uh, to send money rather, to help with several emergencies or situations. And by the time the victim went to police to report this, uh, $200,000 gone. Let's bring in Constable Ed Sanchuk from the OPP out in Norfolk. He is with us now. Ed, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us and get this important message out there for everyone uh, to realize, you know, just in case they become a victim of a scam. This is, uh, and again, obviously, Ed, not the first time we've heard of this. It happens a lot. So, you know, it is good to keep telling these stories and, and at least peop, uh, make people more aware of them. And this is, is certainly not the first time. This is a typical kind of scam. Tell us what happened here. Yeah, just as you explained, uh, you know, we had uh, an individual from Norfolk County uh, begin an online relationship uh, between November of 2021 and January of 23. And after establishing that online relationship over the Internet, you know, they discussed, uh, you know, pretty much everything that they want to talk about when you when you first start dating somebody. Um, as the conversations were exchanged over line or online, you know, the, the suspect then started talking about the history and employment status. And during the course of the corresponding with each other, uh, several requests were made for funds after the suspect claimed that they were having several emergencies and requested money. Um, some of the some of the month funds that were sent were in Bitcoin and in the, in into the capacity of uh, Apple iTunes cards. So we're just telling everybody, and, you know, knowledge is power, and we want everyone to realize, do not be embarrassed. The last thing that we want you to be is embarrassed. However, that it's easy for me to say, um, but we want you to report your concerns to the police because from the time that these people get up in the morning to the time that they go to bed, this is their sole purpose is to basically defraud you of your hard-earned money. So knowledge mm-hmm. is power. And regardless of age and gender, people can take basic steps to better protect themselves from becoming victims of fraud, such as never giving out personal information over the phone, the Internet, or through social media or dating websites. Hmm. Um, and when did this person come to you? Had had the scam stopped by then? How? What triggered that for for the victim to come to you? Actually, they came to us on uh, January 9th, which is Monday. So that's when the, that's when the actual scam stopped. So obviously, there was something in in that made them think that this is possibly a scam. And in fact, it was. And what people need to realize too is that when you start meeting people online or dating websites, you know, you have a little thing there, Google. It's your friend. And, um, you know, you have an opportunity to take a Google pick. And a lot of times what these uh, individuals will do, they will use pictures of like, like various, you know, soap stars or other case may be, or someone that's been a media, a social media influencer. And what we need to do is maybe make sure you start checking out, check out the websites carefully, check out what the pictures are being shared, making sure that you're doing your due diligence. And if you have someone that's going to profess their love for you, 
after a few emails or corresponding online, or even, you know, through video chat, uh, the red flag should immediately go, go up. And is with this situation, what's your chance of catching them, Ed? Have they, have they already come and gone? Um, is there any way to follow up at this point? You know, still early in the investigation. However, um, you know, when the money was transferred, we're going to have our, our crime unit look into this. Obviously, this is a lot of money. This is $200,000. And, yeah. you know, this is absolutely devastating for this individual. And, again, th- this is not the first one that's happened in Norfolk County. We've had several in the past. Um, one not too long ago was uh, close to $800,000. So it's just a reminder that, you know, if anyone calls up and starts professing their love for you, starts asking you for money, uh, you know what? Just, you know what? Do not send anything. That's that's pretty much the, the, the message we're getting out there. And because of the frauds that are occurring in our communities, I am setting up an, an open night here in Norfolk County in February um, to have an open night with all of our community members to come in and learn more about fraud. And the best way to do that is to make sure that we have a good conversation with people. They can sit down at their dinner tables and talk about what's happening. And also the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre, which is a, a great resource of information. And, you know, the little black book of scams, if people want to Google that as well, to show all the types of scams that are occurring in our communities. Uh, we've certainly heard, uh, especially with the senior scams and such, grandkids will call or somebody, uh, you know, alleging that they're, they're your grandkid or somebody representing them. They're in yeah. trouble. They need help. You need to send money, blah, blah, blah. Do you know and can you tell us anything how this all initiated? Did it initiate with an online dating site or, or how did it actually start? Well, this one in particular did initiate with an on- online dating uh, website, and this is where they met this individual. But you know, just speaking of the grandparent scams, the emergency mm-hmm. scam, it's called as well. Um, the, the, the problem we have is that, you know, when you get called at two or three o'clock in the morning and all of a sudden you, you start hearing somebody on the other line sobbing, you're thinking, hey, grandma, grandpa, is this you? Um, yeah. yeah, it's me. Is, is this John? Oh, yeah, grandma, grandpa, it's John. I'm in jail right now. I need money because I need bail. Uh, you know, I've been in a car, a car crash or, I've, or, you know, I've been arrested for impaired driving or drugs, whatever the case may be. And then all of a sudden he passes or she passes the phone over to a lawyer. And then that now gets another person involved, which makes it more believable. And now it gets passed over to someone claiming to be a police officer. So mm. um, there's so many scams out there. They will go and do their best to try and make you believe that you're actually speaking, you know, to a loved one or to a police officer or to a lawyer. So we, we time and time again, talk about this uh, through the OPP with our fight fraud presentation. And we've done 50 or 60 presentations last year. And we're going to continue to educate the public because it's our goal to make sure that we stop, uh, you know, people from becoming victims of fraud in our communities. And basically, Ed, in 30 seconds, your advice here, just if you suspect something, obviously follow it up. Uh, if the red flags go up, follow your instinct. Absolutely. Don't give out any personal information, email, or when you're chatting online. Uh, you can use your computer to your advantage. Educate yourself. Check out the person's name, the company. Again, they can make up fake names. So it's not always easy to spot scams, and new ones are invented every day. So knowledge is power. So stay on top of scams, inform yourself, and talk to your family. All right, Constable Ed Sanchuk, uh, Norfolk County OPP, talking about a scam going on out that way, and it is everywhere. It happens over and over again, and just be aware. Ed, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you very much. Take care and stay safe, everyone. Another legendary classic rocker has died. This time, guitarist Jeff Beck didn't hear a lot from him out front. More behind the scenes. You certainly heard him. That's for sure. Alan Cross is with us, host of the ongoing history of new music. And with us now, Alan, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Happy New Year. 
no, you can't say that after February or January the seventh. Oh, is that right? Oh man, I'm thinking. Well, you know, if I haven't talked to you since the you know last year, that I'm good for it. But no, I, I stand corrected. And uh, you know, after this weekend, I will drop it for sure. So, what are your thoughts here, Alan? As I said, this guy was often heard, but not necessarily known a lot about. He was behind the scenes. Did he want to be a star? Did he like that whole uh, band experience and being out front? I, I think he did to a certain extent. He was not a singer. He was not a front man. He was a guitarist. In fact, uh, the best way a lot of people have described him is the guitarist's guitarist. He was one of the three original guitar heroes, the other two being Jimmy Page and Eric Clapton. All of them played in the Yardbirds. Uh, Jimmy Page will be remembered forever because he was part of Led Zeppelin. Eric Clapton will be remembered forever because he had a bunch of solo hits on his own. Uh, Jeff Beck a little bit different in the sense that he was, like you said, in the background and preferred to let his playing do the talking. He never really had what you'd call hits. He had a few songs that did okay. Mm-hmm. Never with him as, as a lead vocalist. He would get Rod Stewart to do it. Uh, but he was wanted to be known for his guitar playing. And if you talk to serious guitarists, they will tell you that he was the best. Yeah, you can have your Claptons, you can have your Hendrixes, you can have your, your Pages and your Eddie Van Halens, but if you know anything about the guitar, uh, Beck was the best. There was something about his playing, his tonality, the textures of what he did. He never overplayed. It was always very tasteful. Uh, there was one concert in 1983, Ronnie Lane's uh, Arms concert, which was raising money for multiple sclerosis, and I think that was the first time that Page, Beck, and Clapton were on stage together. Now, you can go online and find video of that, and you may think to yourself, my God, Beck blew those other two guys off the stage. Uh, you you talked about his uh, style and how he played. Uh, you see him playing without a pick, a, a very sort of softer style. Of, I don't know if that's the right word or not. So how do you differentiate him from those others you were talking about in that group that formed the Yardbirds? How were they he, different? He, uh, he was an experimenter like the other two guys, but he went off in some different directions. He used a lot of reverb and echo and fuzz and distortion and crazy amp and pickup setups. He, he did all that sort of stuff. But uh, he also, more than the other two guys, let a little bit of jazz creep into what he was doing. Uh, my Jeff Beck introduction was through an album called Blow by Blow from 1975. And uh, there was one track on there that was uh, a rock radio hit called uh, Freeway Jam. It's an instrumental. And it's, it's a really, really tasteful piece of guitar playing that has all kinds of progressive jazz elements in it. And, you know, people would listen to that and go, wow, that's pretty cool. It's different. Beck had a sound, and, and his sound was, like you said, he uh, often played without a pick. Um, and he, he wasn't about necessarily the crazy, wild, over-the-top solos. Uh, he did solo, of course, but there was something different about his. Uh, maybe a little restrained you talked about yeah, he, he experimenting and such and was, oddly enough, a fan of Les Paul, How High the Moon, which we, if, you know, if, if you know the history of that song and, and the uh, technology behind that and the production behind that, um, he, he seemed to be more interested in that side of it. 
I think so. He was also uh, very much of a studio guy, wanting to know how he could use the recording studio to further uh, the journey to get that sound in his head. And uh, if, if you know, you listen to you know Beck album after Beck album after Beck album, and, and the guitar tone t- changes. Um, Hmm. And the style, the playing style. I mean, you listen to a song like with the Yardbirds for a song like uh, Shapes of Things, for example. Uh, you listen to that, and then you fast forward ahead five years, and you can hear the, the, the growth and the change of what he was doing. Um, but it, it's, it's interesting. I think a lot of people right now are hearing about Jeff Beck for the first time, especially a lot of young people. Like, who's he? Hmm. Uh, well, the answer is, you know, he was one of the great guitar heroes in the 1960s and the template for an awful lot of people uh, and an inspiration and influence an awful lot of people. So if you're if you're a guitarist, you got to go back and, and and check him out. I would start at the beginning, start with the Yardbird stuff, and then move slowly through his his discography. And you can even go all the way to the end. Uh, the last record he did was with Johnny Depp, and in fact he was touring with Johnny Depp. Uh, you know, in just weeks before he died, he came down with some sort of well, it was a case of bacterial meningitis over the holidays. He wasn't feeling well, and then suddenly he hmm. dies. So this is uh, you know he was 78 years old. So, you know, and he lived the rock and roll lifestyle, not as hard and as heavy as other people. But, uh, you know, when you get a case of meningitis, that can be fatal real quick. And it was. So this was quite sudden then. Uh, this is what I understand. He uh, yeah. fell ill during the during Christmas and then uh, then died. You know, he was not a guy I had on my bingo card as being one of the people we would lose this year. Absolutely not. Because, like I said, up until recently, he was on tour with Johnny Depp and doing fine. And sounding great, uh, so you know it, it just shows you that that sometimes when it's your time, it's, it's your time. So, what about his place in rock and roll? Uh, what are his peers saying now? Well, his peers are saying he was the greatest guitar player of all time. Uh, you know, everybody, you know, they'll fight about Hendrix. They will fight about Page. They will fight about Prince as being a fantastic guitar player. Uh, but you know, as one of the original heroes, I guess the original guitar hero, if we really want to get down to it, in terms of the rock and roll era, was probably George Harrison. But he, uh, you know, with with the Yardbirds in the mid '60s, he would be number two. So uh, we, we've lost another one, and you know, I, we've spoken about this before. We're on the verge of this mass extinction of all these rock and roll heroes that we've known for 30, 40, 50, 60 years. And it is going to be a very rough time for us in the next while because inevitably these people are going to be leaving us and it's going to hurt. Alan, where does that leave the guitar? Well, the guitar is still doing well. In fact, if you were to look in some of the, under the rock, some of the rocks that I look under, um, I'd actually uh, a little bit, What's the word I'm looking for? Optimistic about the state and the prospects for the electric guitar. You know, if you went back 10 years ago, you would be really kind of worried about where things were going. But there seems to be, maybe it's wishful thinking, but it seems to be, uh, there seems, to me anyway, that there is some sort of renewed uh, interest in the electric guitar, at least based on all the songs that I receive and the new music that I hear. You know, the electric guitar figures in all of them. So it could be, this is a bit morbid, but, you know, every time we lose somebody with the stature of a Jeff Beck, hmm. we, well, a bunch of people may say, okay, who is this guy? Oh, that's who he is. Wow, I want to play like him. I'm going to, you know, spend hours learning how to play the electric guitar. 
That is an interesting point. Alan Cross with us, host of the ongoing history of new music. Legendary guitarist Jeff Beck has passed away, age of 78. Alan, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You're welcome, you too. All right, here we are, uh, second week into the new year. And uh, I, I guess we're just before the bills start to roll in. And, you know, good te- a good time to take a look at the finances, see where we are, and and make some adjustments to, to to make sure that 2023 is a profitable one for you. Let's bring in Don Fox, executive financial consultant with the Fox Group, IG Private Wealth Management, and of course, uh, host of Planning Your Financial Future every Saturday morning right here on CHML. Don is with us now. Don, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, yeah, Scott. Good to hear from you. I'm doing great. Thank you. And I get to talk to you two days early. This is great. There you go. There you go. Before the big show on Saturday, of course. Um, yeah. So uh, a new year and, and you know, obviously 2022 has been a, a pretty turbulent time. Saw a lot of interest rate hikes and such. Uh, first of all, your thoughts on where we are, where we've come from. Um, I, I guess we're still going to hear of some interest rate hikes in the future. Uh, hopefully not the, I don't know, half dozen or so that we've gotten in the last little while. But what are your thoughts coming out of 22 heading into 20? 2023. Yeah, it's uh, talk about turbulence. You're right. You go from the the heels of 21, where it seemed to be a party going on. Everybody was making money on pretty much anything, from their homes going up 53% in a couple of years, the stock market rallying, kind of like a pandemic rally with all the money going thrown in the market. Crisp, um, you know, um, cryptocurrencies were going through the roof. You name it, there wasn't anything that was going down. Then you got to 22. And pretty much the party ended and lights were turned off and uh, interest rates went up, inflation went up, and there wasn't an asset class that actually went up. Um, commercial real estate actually would be the exception. And because uh, they had already gone down prior to the pandemic when people were leaving the office buildings and they all were kind of sent back to the office. So that area did okay, but bonds and stocks throughout the world uh, took a hit and cryptocurrencies <laughs> also took a hit and you name it, uh, they went down. And, and But the good thing is interest rates rose and from an investment standpoint it's actually a little better to have a you know a little higher interest rates so at least a fixed income portion of your portfolio is now starting to make money because mm. there was a time where you know back in the pandemic where you're making half percent and you know that's a you know you should have some fixed income in your portfolio and you're 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 not doing very well if you're making less than one percent or even if you were making say one or two percent so now that area has done pretty good and uh here we are coming into 23 and uh, what do we do? It still comes down to creating a balanced portfolio. You know, I know last year it didn't work out well for pretty much any investor, but that's an aberration. Uh, you know, four to five years are positive um, in, in the stock market, sometimes only three or four years. But generally, generally speaking, you're going to have a lot more ups and downs. And the bond market is usually positive, but uh, when interest rates go up that quick, it also had a negative year. So Speak to your financial advisor and, and make sure that see what opportunities you have. Maybe there's some rebalancing on the heels of last year. So that being said, we are heading into a new year or we are in a new year. It's January. Uh, I, I know that this is all about planning and, and crossing your T's and dotting your I's. So what should you be doing at this time of the year? What, how do you get ready? How do you set yourself up for the year? Well, great question, Scott. And And you know what? I think people get a little kind of, I call it lazy, if you will, if they're making, you know, 
there's almost this feeling they're getting rich because their house went up in value so much and they started spending money just there's this, this net worth oh my net worth's up and and they start spending money and, and interest rates were so low so they kind of started spending things they may not have normally bought and this is a great time if not earlier actually but you know january is always a good time to sit back and say okay what do we need and and literally go through all your bills and you may have picked up a lot of kind of pandemic expenses such as you know uh, disney plus or you know amazon bills or some of the food services and some of the subscriptions call it that you may not actually be using anymore and so okay start maybe getting rid of some of those and take a real close look at what are you spending on say dinners out and some of the you know discretionary items and do we still need to and really on the debt side if anybody is in debt, well, there's a lot of people in debt, but for those that are in debt, rather, you know, the interest rates are going up or have gone up. And there's, sometimes it makes sense just to really pay attention on the cash flow. And it always makes sense to, pardon me, it always makes sense to watch cash flow. But where the interest expense lie, you, you should maybe say, okay, is it time to consolidate? Can I pay off a certain debt and increase my cash flow? And and maybe when if my mortgage is coming up, what should I do? It's, Super important with the increase in um, interest rates to watch the liability side of your balance sheet. Don Fox with us, executive financial consultant, Fox Group IG Private Wealth Management, and of course, host of Planning Your Financial Future uh, coming up every Saturday right here on Saturday morning on CHML. Don, as always, thanks so much for the time. We'll chat Saturday. Be well. You bet, Scott. Thanks so much. Bye now. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. A uh, St. Catherine's explosion earlier this morning, about 6.30 this morning at a chemical plant down there. Uh, one worker has been taken to a hospital with uh, burns and such, waiting to hear more on that. Um, at this point, it looks like the fire has been contained. Uh, but again, it is still an act situation. Let's bring in Brittany Rosen, Global News, digital broadcast journalist, and with us now. Brittany, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thanks for having me, Scott. Same to you. All right. Before we uh, get to the fire and the condition and what is going on now, uh, what can you tell us about uh, the person that has been injured here? Any more updates there? What do we know? The updates do not go beyond what the fire chief briefed us on just a few hours ago. It was a worker at the site. It's believed this was one of the only employees who was in the building at the time. Again, this happened at uh, around 630. That's when eyewitnesses started to hear those explosions. And at last update, uh, that person was rushed to hospital with critical injuries. And what do we know about this plant? We understand there's chemicals, hazardous materials involved. What do we know about this plant? What do they do? So not a lot of information so far on this. According to the fire chief, uh, this plant stored a number of hazardous materials. At the time, they did find some paint um, that contained some toxic materials. Um, It's unclear at this point how many substances were dispersed into the air, uh, but that is being investigated by the Ministry of Environment, who was on scene um, and in the area conducting air quality tests uh, throughout the day. So uh, that's that's all the information that we have on these chemicals. But uh, I know that was a big concern because the fire chief said that if they if they wanted to make sure these chemicals were clear before sending residents back, because 
this type of chemical, if it heats up, it could cause additional explosions. So a definitely high concern when it comes to that. Uh, so obviously, uh, the fire department concerned about the hazardous material from the beginning, hence the evacuation. Uh, you said there's air quality people there now. Any idea when the people in surrounding area get to go back? I think that is the update that we're all waiting for. Uh, When there was a press conference around 1 p.m., the fire chief and the mayor did say that we would get that update around 4.30. So, you know, I'm just checking. I'm monitoring the Twitter feeds right now. Um, I do see from St. Catherine's Fire that the fire is now under control. But in terms of sending residents back home, uh, we have not seen uh, an update on that front yet. You know, there's more than 50 of them displaced. They've been staying in a uh, local aquatic center throughout the day. We're not sure if that's the exact number, but that's the number of people that were reported to be staying at uh, that aquatic center. So it's really going to be based on a couple of factors on on when residents can be sent home. Again, uh, that update should be coming in a few minutes from the city and, and, and the fire department. But it really just depends on when they clear all of those and they make sure that there's none of those toxic or harmful chemicals that are in the air or in the environment. Um, so crews have been working all day. There's also been a uh, hazardous material company that's been called in to make sure that none of these chemicals uh, seep into the water system. So there's all of those aspects to monitor when it comes to this investigation. So when it comes to residents being sent home, they got to get the all clear that there's no more of these toxic chemicals in the air. So again, that's just what we're waiting for at this point. How close is this plant to residential areas? It's extremely close. I mean, we spoke yeah. with one woman um, today. Uh, she's she's a senior. She's been living there for close to 30 years. Um, she said she lived roughly 400 meters away from from the, the plant, this this industrial area. And she brought up concerns with this type of company being in the area. She says the city you know, needs to address this because uh, she said there's been an explosion like this, not not to this extent, she said, this is the worst it's ever been. But she says that there's been concerns when it comes to companies operating with hazardous materials uh, in the area. So it's extremely close to 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 homes and as well as businesses. What about other damage? Uh, I, I thought I saw or read earlier on that uh, a neighboring business had also uh, caught fire or such. Is, is this contained to this site, this building or was there other structures involved? From the update that um, I, from to my understanding, um, it's really it's mainly this this company. Um, mm-hmm. I I don't have this information on on neighboring businesses that were impacted or the extent of the damage that has hit neighboring businesses. Don't have that information right now. So what are they doing now? Just still trying to put this out. What is the scene like at this point? So I'm just uh, a few minutes away from the scene. I'm just uh, working on my story for television, which you can catch at Global News uh, at six on on Global News Toronto. Um, but at this point, uh, from on on Twitter, you know, 
they are saying that they are just putting out the hotspots. Um, the Ontario Fire Marshal is still on scene to to start their investigation. Enbridge is also on site securing some gas lines. Um, my cameraman that's on the scene right now, he says that there are a number of residents there that are trying to get back in. Unfortunately, it looks like that's that's not the case right now. But uh, we're hoping that you know they they are able to return back to their homes before the end of the night. All right, Brittany Rosen, uh, Global News Digital Broadcast Journalist, is talking about the St. Catharines fire and where we are right now as uh, obviously some homeowners waiting to get back in. Make sure you're watching Global, Night, uh, Global News tonight for more on all of this. Brittany, thank you so much for the time. Be well. You as well. Thanks for having me. Take care. We certainly know if you are a Bills fan what it's been like over the last couple of weeks and, of course, uh, last week's game against New England and hearing the news that Damar Hamlin uh, was on his way to a recovery. Boy, it, it seemed like there was a lot of magic. Let's bring in Steve Foxcroft. He has been on the Buffalo Bills chain crew for 30 years, working the game this Sunday against Miami. That will be a barn burner. And, of course, last weekend uh, against New England. To talk more about all of it, Steve Foxcroft is with us. Buffalo Bills chain crew and vice president of fluke transport in his spare time steve foxcroft with us now steve thank you for the time i hope you're doing well yeah i'm doing great scott good to be with you so is every member of the foxcroft family involved in officiating in some way can we go and see any game without knowing that they're there or involved in some way i guess with a whistle the answer is no but but man it's like there's so many there's so many officials in this game in this family how do you explain that you should see the family, all of us, sitting around watching a game. It's ridiculous. We're always critiquing things and saying, this should be this way, this should be that way. It's crazy. You know, it's funny you should say that, Steve, because I thought you were going in a different direction, which was my next question, because I was going to say, what is a family dinner like with you guys? Because I can just imagine, you know, there's whistles. Uh, all of a sudden, your napkin comes off your lap. There's a flag in the play because someone spoke out of turn or what have you. I can just imagine what a dinner gathering's like with you guys it's crazy we all tell our stories about the good thing too like we overlap a little bit but dave dave my brother he referees football i do basketball i overlap with the football into the the bills chain crew he does the cfl all the time his boys are into refereeing my brother ronnie and i referee basketball together all the time my dad of course he's done it all in refereeing too so it does get a little hairy and it we always remember like we go back to history of games we had or situations we had so they always come up we recycle a lot of the same old stories right but we still laugh just just the same amount i was asking your brother this once uh, because like obviously as a player as a fan i mean you get incredibly emotional obviously uh, officials cannot do this but you must be able to feel that energy on the field just as the players do when you've got a really tight game do you feel that does it is it different then Absolutely. You definitely feel it, especially in somewhere like uh, the energy of a building with the bill, 71,000 people, you Mm. can feel it. And it was interesting. Or, you know, as a referee, too, you feel it in a different way. You feel it in the intensity. And sometimes, you know, you got to kind of clamp down. Like, you know how they say in hockey, they put their whistles away in the third period or overtime. Well, it's kind of the opposite sometimes where you have to make a few calls because you feel the game getting away from you. But the emotional side with the fans and momentum and so on. And it was really neat the other day. I'm on the sideline. The whole pregame was good. The DeMar Hamlin story, it was quite emotional. And then 
they run the opening kickoff back for a touchdown. <laughs> exactly. And I didn't know until, because I'm not watching the game. I, the one thing, I never get to watch the games on TV. So, like, uh, Jack Armstrong on the Raptors, the greatest and so entertaining. I hardly ever get to listen to him because I'm at the games. Well, same with the Bills. And I didn't realize until I got home and watched the game over that Jim Nance, the CBS uh, lead anchor or lead play-by-play guy, his call of that touchdown run was sensational. And he called it storybook. And I think we all thought that, but he thought it enough to say it, right? And when I got Mm. home and saw that after, it gave me chills all over again because it was just the right thing to say at the right time. So uh, my brother-in-law was lucky enough to be at that game, and I was texting him about it. But what was it like? How was it different? Uh, because obviously just before game, uh, finding out DeMar Hamlin making a recovery, the team's uh, jacked up about it. Did it feel different? Could you? What was it like that weekend? It was different in that it was an emotional. You came from two, two days of being numb, right, and worrying mm-hmm. and just wanting to hear something to some good news. But I'll tell you where it was different. The New England Patriots have had our number for 20 years. Yeah. And when I say our number, now I'm talking like a Buffalo Bills fandom and so on. I'm, I'm neutral when I'm doing my job. But the New England Patriots have had our number for 20 years. But in the stadium at that moment, New England Patriot fans were our friends. Yeah. Everybody was getting along. Everybody was emotional. And then, again, another thing I saw when I got home afterwards the outpouring across the league, the stadiums across the league. When I saw Russell Wilson wearing number three and his Mm. opponent wearing number three walk, just the two of them alone to center field and kneel and pay respect, I was numb from that in another way, in a good way. It was sensational. But to your point, like, yeah, the emotion in the stadium was amped up, a little bit different than just, like, let's let's knock their heads off, let's do this, let's do that. It was like a... Uh, a motion of a sense of um, relief almost and fandom and we're all in this together. It was like how the world should be. You know, it was really a neat feeling. You know, that's an that's an interesting point, Stephen. I'm getting goosebumps as you're telling me that story. But I asked somebody, a psychologist or whatever, earlier on in this week, do you think stuff like this unites us? Considering where we are, and we don't want to get political or whatever, but a lot of division in the world, this stuff helps. This is what we need. We do, and we need it more often, right? Because I think it wears off too quickly. You know, it's kind of like mm. the, the cop at the side of the road with the radar gun. Boy, oh boy, <laughs> you look at your speed limit, don't you? And then maybe 10 miles, 10 kilometers down the road, you're maybe driving a little too fast again and not paying attention. And it's the same sort of philosophy of we need it to last longer. I yeah, want good point. Something we all feel and get along together all the time. Here's hoping. So um, I, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but what do you learn from someone like your dad when it comes business would be one thing, but when it comes to officiating, wh- what did he teach you guys? What do you learn from that? He said, call what you see, call the obvious, right? Like don't make up stuff. And, and that was where that game was well officiated. I thought there wasn't all mm. these little ticky tack flags coming in, killing drives, so on and forth, so forth. But my dad just, he, he taught us just by example. He didn't have to tell us very much. We just have mm-hmm. to, you do what you see, right? And my dad, he's just the best for that. He he just leads by example in every facet of life. Like when, when he came out with his book, which I'm sure you've heard about. And yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, wasn't it? It was completely different from what I was expecting. I was expecting a biography, 
Hmm. But it was just those 41 yes. and then the one extra little short stories that that's what dad is to us day in and day out, right? Those 40, 41 little short stories of leading by example. And it's great that, uh, you know, we get to see it every day. That's great. And but one day we got to get that biography out of them in, in a real deal. All right. Uh, we only got a few seconds left. Miami this weekend. Uh, that's going to be a barn burner as well. Yeah, Miami, unfortunately, they're undermanned. They've lost yep. their quarterback. They lost their backup quarterback, Bridgewater. So they're playing with a kid who pretty much has more interceptions than completions. So the Bills should take care of business. Miami's saying they have no offensive line. Like yeah. their, their pro bowler is out, too. So it should just be the Bills taking care of business and earning the right to play probably Cincinnati, which will be another emotional game, but this time it'll be in Buffalo. Wow, what an exciting way to make a living. Steve Foxcroft with his vice president of Fluke Transport when he's not in the Buffalo Bills chain crew, uh, watching it on field level uh, and some incredible stories. We'll have you back and hear some more of those. Steve, thanks for the time. Be well. Good luck this weekend. Anytime, Scott. Go Bills. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Coming up the end of January. Uh, the Prime Minister is going to be in town for a couple of days with his cabinet. There you go. Uh, it's where everybody shows up to Hamilton, including the Premier today and Vic Fidelli, Minister of Economic Development and Job Creation and Trade. He is with us now. Vic, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, uh, it was a really great day to be in Hamilton today. We had a lot of fun. All right, so talk about uh, coming to Hamilton. Why were you here? Uh, what were you talking about? What's the big news? Uh, lots of announcements. The first was a big investment from Beanbow Canada. They uh, are the makers of lots of our bread products. Uh, um, and so that was exciting. They're investing $15 million in a new uh, facility, you know, where they make Dempsters and Bellagio mm-hmm. and Stone Mill and other breads. They're going to be making the uh, tortillas there uh, because of, there's really been a shift from sandwiches to the wraps. And so they're reacting to the market investing $15 million, and so uh, the Premier was there today and uh, joined by several cabinet ministers and several MPPs and uh, just celebrating the investment. Uh, it's amazing how uh, industry has exploded on Hamilton Mountain. Uh, once the expressway was built and such, it seems every time you drive along there, you're seeing something new come up. Yeah, uh, there's a great industrial park there. Beanbow was the first one yeah. and uh, really uh, uh, became the anchor tenant. Um, and so we're really excited to see them uh, do what they're doing and and to talk about, you know, hopefully even more uh, expansion in the future. From there, we uh, were over at DeFasco. You know, DeFasco is spending, investing, I should say, $2 billion to... Uh, get off of coal and make steel with a high arc uh, electricity furnace, um, which means that steel that goes into our EVs that will be built in Ontario will be green steel. So that was a really important uh, investment update to to see how their investment is coming along and to meet with the you know, many of the men and women who work at uh, DeFasco. So that was a very, very good tour, very exciting tour over there as well. 
Let's take a, let's talk for a little bit. Let's talk for a little bit about that bit because I find this absolutely fascinating. Because anybody that spent any time in Hamilton knows about the steel mills, knows uh, that the coal comes in and, and what we need to burn in order to create what we create. Um, getting that steel mill off of coal is a massive, massive undertaking. I mean, you know, I, I can remember when we stopped burning coal in southern Ontario for, for electricity and such, how much yeah. of a difference it made. Uh, this is going to make a, a visible difference in Hamilton once it is done. Is that accurate? Oh, absolutely. This is an electric far, uh, uh, arc furnace technology. So this is also, by the way, equivalent to taking a million cars off the road. Yeah. Uh, so this, uh, uh, you know, it's a whole new next generation. Um, it'll be, a, you know, the, the, the skills that the next gen workers will have will be different. But these are going to be rewarding, high paying jobs, well underway, equipment's on order. Um, they showed us you know, where, how, how sort of like half the plant basically will be gone and replaced with this and yet just how it's all being modernized. It was so exciting to see that. Um, and of course, again, the significant reduction in the CO2 emissions from 3 million tons every year will, will uh, be removed. So it's exciting. How concerned are you about uh, electricity production and having enough to do this? Because I'm guessing, you know, like, man, once you turn that on, all the lights in Hamilton are going to dim. Uh, what? And, of course, they won't. But um, is, this, is this a separate plant with natural gas feeding it? How are we – how are, how are you going to power this thing? Yeah, so we meet with the Minister of Energy from my minister, Ministry of Economic Development uh, – Every time we have uh, new projects that are coming down the pipe, we meet. So, so the Minister of Energy in my ministry, we meet often about all the projects coming up in our pipeline to make sure we have enough energy. We're well assured uh, of the energy production here in Ontario. Uh, and by the way, it's also very clean energy to be produced in Ontario, 94% clean energy. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are assured of the supply. And this is the message, you know, that I took when we were in Japan and Korea and in Germany at automakers and battery uh, uh, plant uh, prospects that we've got a lot of energy. It's clean energy. We've got a great workforce, 65,000 STEM grads every year. And we just get into the whole message of Ontario. We really are firing on all cylinders. I will tell you, Scott, we're also in Stony Creek today. Uh, there's a company called Bartech, and they make um, uh, certain uh, ingredients that go in foods, uh, a malic acid and a fumaric acid, to, to be technical. They're investing $175 million in a brand-new plant in Stony Creek. I mean, this is the kind of activity that's happening in uh, uh, not only in uh, you know Hamilton and region, but right across Ontario. It's Lots of companies, lots of investment, lots of employment, and lots happening in Ontario. We're just on all cylinders right now. Vic Fidelli with us, Minister of Economic Development, uh, Job Creation and Trade in the Hammer today, along with the Premier, talking about economic expansion and where we're moving in the future. Vic, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. Much appreciated. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
We've been uh, obviously watching this story since this morning, uh, early this morning, around 6.30. Fire crews uh, called to a Port Weller East area of St. Catharines after multiple explosions uh, woke the hood up. Uh, starting, I guess, around uh, 6.30 this morning um, in a hazardous materials company plant, Kiefer Road, not far from Seaway Haulage Road. And um, about 50 people, I guess, evacuated from nearby homes in the area. And um, the fire was contained in about three hours, which is where they are now. And uh, but obviously still on the scene as um, as this continues to uh, to smolder. Let's bring in Matt Cisco, mayor for the city of St. Catharines, and with us now, Matt. Thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. It's uh, definitely been a difficult day, but I think we uh, have some positive news on the horizon for us. Man, I I can just imagine what you're going through, especially when this all starts at 630 in the morning and you really don't know what you have on your hands. Give us an update. Uh, Well, first, let's start with the employee that was there. Uh, Do we we know anything more about the victim and the person that was injured? Uh, All that I know at this point is that they've been transferred to Sunnybrook Hospital and they were in critical condition. And so we're uh, obviously thinking and praying about them and hoping they make a recovery. And as far as we know, only one person, one employee on the site at the time of the explosion? Yeah, that's what the uh, fire services have have said. There was only one employee there at the time. And so I think that's a, a lucky piece of information today. All right. So where are we now? Um, uh, we understand that the fire is contained. It's not out yet. There's still some smoldering there. What is the site like now? Uh, well, it is controlled and contained. Uh, fire services have been battling it all day, obviously. Uh, but uh, we also know it spread to the adjacent building. And so we know that there was a cave in there. Uh, but that seems to be the only damage in the area uh, is just the, those two properties. Uh, which is also a piece of good news. At this point, uh, there were about 115 residents that had registered at our evacuation center. We still don't have a a total count of how many homes were evacuated this morning, but they have been given the okay to go back to their homes at this point. Ministry of the Environment has been on site doing, uh, because it's a chemical plant uh, or a chemical facility, they've been doing a lot of air and water testing to make sure that the air quality was okay. Uh, They've given the okay now, so residents are able to return to their homes. So that's good news. So that means everybody can go home. There's nobody still stuck at shelters or what have you. They can all return. That's right. Uh, the Ministry of the Environment said the air quality is fine. And that was the biggest concern from our perspective mm. was making sure that uh, the air was breathable uh, and was safe. And the ministries confirmed that. So we'll be winding down our emergency evacuation center at uh, at the aquatic center in Midtown. And, uh, and we're hopeful that everybody gets home quickly and uh, they're able to uh, to finish the day a little bit easier than they started it. So uh, how close was this plant to residential areas? How concerned are you that there's hazardous materials that are relatively close? Uh, at this stage, fire services isn't concerned about the proximity at this point. The The concern really was the flammability and those whatever toxins were on site possibly getting into the air. Uh, there is a, a, a some separation between the industrial area and where the residential area is uh, and a buffer there. So there's not too much concern of that. With respect to the water that was used to put down the fire, though, we've been uh, on site. Our municipal work staff have been on site, and this is probably going to cause some concerns going forward. We're going to have to be very carefully monitoring the water in and around the area to to make sure that uh, no contaminants get into the groundwater. They don't uh, don't get over to those residential areas. But we have staff on site that are working through that now, and we're confident we're going to be able to contain everything. 
Uh, obviously, when something like this happens, uh, it's a state of emergency momentarily till you know what's going on and, and plans go into a pl- into place. How are confident are you, uh, whether it's all EMS, fire, whatever, on, on getting this uh, situation under control as quickly as possible? Not only the fire itself, but the movement of people, an evacuation site, all that sort of thing. What about the plan? Uh, everything worked today the way it was supposed to. Uh, a number of residents, I spent a couple hours at the evacuation site today talking to residents, uh, and a number of them expressed just how amazed they were, how quickly uh, the sirens were on scene. Uh, you know, from the time the first explosions were heard, it was about two or three minutes before the fire truck started to roll up and the NRP was there at the same time, along with EMS. I can't give enough credit to uh, to our fire service folks for putting the fire down. And as well, the Niagara Regional Police and EMS, uh, Niagara Regional Police went door to door for the evacuation this morning. And again, we couldn't have hoped for the, the plans we have to have been put in place uh, the way they were and activated today. We couldn't have asked for more than that. We activated our emergency operations center here at the city very early on. Uh, we had a partial activation to make sure we were on top of things, and the regular updates have made everybody confident uh, in the outcome today on site. And uh, any idea the number of firefighters that fought this? Did you need any help from outside? How about that? Uh, I know uh, the, the fire chief would be able to speak to this better, but uh, I know at one point we had four pumpers, two aerials, uh, I believe 30 firefighters on site. We didn't need uh, a support trucks from other municipalities, uh, but I believe the township of Lincoln did uh, offer um, a vehicle just to allow our firefighters to get out of uh, the elements for short periods of time and get some respite. Um, but, uh, I also know the mutual aid agreements we have with our neighbors, uh, if, if we had needed them, they would have been there and we have good relationships with all of the surrounding municipalities. So that was never a concern. So, uh, all in all so far, fingers crossed for, for the employee, but good news at this point. Um, what's next? What happens to this site now? Uh, right now, the fire fire marshal's office of Ontario is on site, and they're doing their regular investigation. Uh, so they are going to uh, going to be there. We've got most of the roads opened up, except for the roads immediately adjacent or the road immediately adjacent to the properties, uh, so that that investigation can continue. Our fire services are still on site. Uh, we'll have security there to guard the site tonight. Uh, I know the Ministry of the Environment will continue to be engaged to make sure that uh, we're not dealing with any contaminants in the neighborhood. Um, but my biggest message right now to residents is if you don't need to be there outside of the residents who actually live in the neighborhood, we're asking people to just stay away. Uh, Mm -hmm. it, it makes everything harder to accomplish when people are trying to get close to take pictures or see what's going on. We're just asking people to stay, uh, out of the neighborhood for the time being, unless they actually live there, uh, to make, make those investigations easier and, and happen faster. And keep the drones grounded. I'm understanding. (laughs) Oh man, that's amazing. That was, uh. That was that was the report earlier today was that there were people trying to fly drones in there. And I just I, I it boggles wow. my mind sometimes what people think is acceptable in a situation like that. But, yeah, keep the drones away. Matt Sisko with his mayor for the city of St. Catharines commenting on the fire that broke out there this morning and the ensuing evacuation. Good news. Everything slowly returning back to normal. Matt, thank you for the time. Be well. Good luck. Thank you. Same to you. Cheers.
We certainly know uh, the discussion in and around Canadian healthcare. Lord knows we've been trying to keep this topic front and center since the uh, global pandemic started three years ago, which has completely exposed the inadequacies in our much beloved uh, chest and chest uh, expanding Canadian healthcare system that we're all so proud of. Until of course you have to actually use it. This is nothing to do with the healthcare workers who are giving it their all. We are so proud of them, and they are screaming for our help. The province is trying to get together, get the prime minister to the table. Uh, the prime minister says, "I'm not coming. Uh, if you want money, you gotta you gotta have concessions. You gotta bring reform." Well, what the heck is reform, and what the heck are concessions? Can anybody talk about it? And if it's this easy, why did we not do it? One, two, three decades ago. Uh, three decades ago. Uh, the latest headline out of the Star and the Spec say, Doug Ford says Ontario will accept Trudeau government's conditions for a new health care funding. Well, what does that mean? Is he just a nice guy or did he give up something? Let's bring in Peter Gray, professor of political science, McMaster University. He's with us now. Peter, thank you for your time. Hope you're well. I am, thanks. Hope you're well, too. So for the longest time, it was all about getting the prime minister together with the premiers and have a meeting. Clearly, uh, the prime minister did not see the value of that, uh, said he wants reforms, wants them to change things. Uh, but again, nobody can describe what a reform is or what conditions uh, and such are. What are your thoughts? We first heard this with uh, Premier Legault out of Quebec, that he was working uh, on coming to a closer deal. Uh, and now it appears that uh, the premier is uh, is echoing the same uh, sort of of uh, words. What are your thoughts here? How do we process this? Is it all fixed now? Uh, it's not all fixed, but uh, I think it, these are steps towards there being a deal, ultimately. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the federal government has a budget coming up in a couple of months, and the province is about a month after that. And I think the provinces are at the stage where they want to know if they're going to be getting this money or not, because it's pretty crucial in terms of a lot of other decisions they'll be making in their budgets. And so I think we we saw a bit with Legault and I think a lot with uh, Ford with this uh, statement um, that some of the provinces that would have been holding out against the idea of taking on more conditions are now willing to discuss them if it brings the federal government to the table and brings them closer to having a uh, a specific deal. Uh, the, the premier was quoted as saying uh, conditions, that's the least of our issues right now. Um, are we fighting a game of semantics here? It's how it's positioned. Everybody's looking for a win. Well, I mean, we have a constitution which says that our provinces really have the power over health care. And here we have a federal government trying to tell the provinces, you know, what they should be doing in that uh, area of the constitution. And so that's an issue that gets uh, Quebec, uh, but also often Alberta uh, upset, uh, you know, a number of other provinces who say, well, the federal government aren't exactly great in the little bits of health care that they're meant to do with veterans and indigenous people in this country. So how are they telling us to, to run health care systems? Uh, You know, so you have provinces who, you know, will push back against the federal government. Ontario sometimes lines up with the provinces uh, in this. But I think with Ford making this move, it makes it much harder for the provinces to stand out because the poorer provinces are already, I think, keen to take this money because they they feel they need it. And so now with the biggest province coming in that direction, um, you know, it really leaves uh, Alberta and to a lesser extent uh, Quebec 
uh, standing out a bit by themselves. Will we ever really know what these reforms or concessions or whatever the conditions are uh, were? I mean, we hear the government constantly talking about, the federal government, about a database so everybody can know what's going on across the, all of the provinces. That, of course, common sense makes makes a great uh, makes great sense. It's a great idea. Uh, but again, I'm not sure that's going to fix or is one of the most primary concerns with our health care system. Um, uh, will we find out what these reforms what these conditions are what they are doing to fix this yeah i'm sure when they come to a deal there will be a, a press release which in very vague terms is going to say what they are and then uh you know down the road there will be um you know agreements between the federal government and the provinces you know setting those out i mean if we if we look at past ones uh you know in many cases it's about the provinces coming up with action plans so i mean part of the the you know the fixes that the federal government is looking for now is is action on home care and on mental health, uh, which they also, you know, got action from the provinces in 2017, which was really the provinces coming up with plans saying, here's how we're going to improve our services in these areas with the money that you're sending us. And, you know, here are the uh, bits of information that we're going to send to the public and to, to you, the federal government, in terms of improved outcomes uh, in these fields. So, you know, that's what this has looked like in, in recent agreements between the federal and provincial governments. I think that's likely what we're going to see again. Um, I think for a lot of Canadians looking at it, they they would say, well, this isn't really that strong in the way uh, of conditions. It's probably not going to produce, a, you know, huge uh, convergence in what our provinces are doing on these things. Um, but, you know, that's the way uh, the federal government, I think, pretends, uh, you know, when it postures to Canadians, pretends to be saying to be leading on health care, even when the, the big decisions remain in the hands of the provinces who are running these these large and complex systems. So is this the same old, same old? I mean, is this any different than anything we've been doing in the past where, you know, provinces start complaining, so the government comes in and puts some Band-Aids on or helps them out in some way, whether it's like, like is, is this is this the, uh, the systemic change that we've been looking for? I mean, I've heard many say there's two options here to make it very, very, very simple. You can either keep throwing lots of money at the same old system or you can try to actually fix the template in the way that you're doing things. Is that what we're doing here or is it again just, okay, we'll just keep and give enough money to keep everybody quiet, we'll move on? Uh, I think from the point of view of the federal government, it's that. I mean, the provinces, uh, you know, do want to change their systems, but they face a bunch of uh, a bunch of, uh, of uh, professionals who in many cases want the status quo or, you know, want to be compensated for change in ways that, you know, don't make sense for provincial governments. So, you know, for a, a chunk of provincial spending, which in most provinces is about, you know, 40% of the tax dollars spent, uh, there's an incentive for the governments to, to get better results. But, uh, you know, there's also an incentive for them to avoid political fallout of taking on, you know, very uh, well thought of professionals in the system. And I think that often leads to, you know, reforms falling somewhat short uh, of what might be needed. I mean, for how many years have we been trying to improve primary care and access to physicians, uh, but getting the pieces of that together and getting coordinated with the with the you know the medical associations have been entirely difficult in all the provinces. Well, um, what does the feds have to give up in any of this? They're looking for their database, but is that all that this money is going to go through? I mean, we've heard uh, the premier, especially in the last day or so, uh, talk about how as soon as you word, mention the word privatization, everybody tightens up, but points to hospitals like Shouldice and what have you that are specialized in certain areas. They're all private, and you don't pay with your credit card. You pay with your with your OHIP card. Is there a conversation going on by 
behind the scenes about this stuff? Because I, I, I have a hard time believing that this money's all coming because the federal government wanted a database. Yeah, I mean, you know, what the federal government gives up is the fact that they had to tax Canadians for this, and so they pay the the price for, for taxing Canadians, um, you know, and then they send that money to the provinces rather than having the provinces raise the money themselves. But in return for sending that money, you're right, they can begin to, you know, threaten to not send it if certain conditions aren't met under the Canada Health Act. So I think part of this is is shadow boxing, where a number of provinces are starting to make a greater use of private clinics to deliver parts of health care. And, uh, you know, do they get a quid pro quo from the federal government saying they aren't really going to enforce the Canada Health Act in its most stringent sense, uh, which might, you know, question whether that fits with under the, the condition of, of public administration. So, yeah, I think that's probably part of the story, too, where maybe someone like Ford says, yeah, I'm fine with these federal conditions uh, for this new money. But the the quid pro quo is that the federal government uh, doesn't ask the harder questions uh, of some recent reforms, you know, again, and whether they fit with the Canada Health Act. Uh, I'm certainly not an expert on the Canada Health Act, um, but do we have to make changes there in order to see real reform? Uh, I don't think so. But I mean, that would be one way to get to reform. Um, But uh, no, there's also many things that have been, you know, tried and could continue to be tried that fit very much within uh, the parameters of that. Peter Grape with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University, the never ending challenge to fix the Canadian healthcare system. Peter, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. And you too. It's the Scott Radley Show. You can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I, I am great, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Interested in one of the topics you're going to talk about tonight. We were talking about this uh, uh, when we got back from holidays and such, uh, especially when we found out, specifically I'm talking about uh, the gang of girls that uh, ended up stabbing the homeless man in Toronto. And I think there was like six of them, the age, ranging in age from uh, 13, 14, all the way up to uh, 16. You're going to talk about uh, this tonight. I think one of the things that stood out when we were chatting about it was that instead of it being boys it was a group of girls what are your thoughts well what we're going to be talking about is because uh, we've now had a couple incidents in just in hamilton in the last few days with young people involved in horrible things and and there's of course that one you described in toronto with the homeless guy getting sort of gang stabbed i mean it's just a bizarre yeah. story and, and you know these things you start to wonder, I start to wonder, and I think, you know, when you hear from people, I think a lot of people start to wonder, is it a sign when when stuff like this starts to happen in, you know, they're all going to be one or two that happen occasionally. They start happening close. They seem to be. All right, we're going to have to see if we can get Scott. Can we see if we can get another line with Scott there? He's uh, he's all over the place there. Yeah, if you can do that real quick. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about the, the story. He, Scott is particularly going to talk about at what point do they get charged as an adult. We've, we've had this discussion a bazillion times ever since probably uh, the Youth, uh, Canada Youth Act, criminal justice, I forget what it's even called now, um, where uh, obviously if you're a certain age, you, you are tried as a juvenile and not as an adult. Does that get to the point where kids say, well, you can't touch me, so I'm going to do this. Is that what it is? I mean, I remember many talking about that. All right, Scott Radley, you're back. 
I am back. Sorry about that. All right. So the so so obviously you're going to talk about uh, you know at what point do these kids get charged as an adult? I mean, ever since the Young Offenders Act or whatever you want to call it now um, uh, has came to be, we've had this argument. Do you think it's got to the point where kids are realizing they can't be touched, so they do what they want? Um, because well, to me, this wonder. goes beyond that. You wonder, but you, I mean. There are certain cases, and again, the one in Toronto with the the kids stabbing the homeless man. I mean, is there a possibility? Is there even, Scott, the faintest possibility that all eight or six or whatever it was, girls who were involved in that, didn't know that what they were doing was wrong? I mean, part of the idea with the Young Offenders Act was that, well, you know, the young brain isn't fully developed. They don't maybe quite know right from wrong and you know, you're not fully capable of making informed decisions on your actions because you're not, you know, you're not mature yet. Could you possibly have done that and said, I don't know if this is allowed or not. There's no possible way in my mind anyway. There's no way that any of them or even yeah. if one of them was a complete psychopath, could you possibly imagine that eight of them found each other and did none of them knew that this was wrong and what the, the results of this were going to be. So, you know, at, at some point, do you not have to say, I'm sorry, I know you're a kid, but your behavior was not kid-like. You know, I think committing a crime, robbery, whatever, um, that's one thing. Yeah, I can get away with this, you know, I do it so many times, then no one's going to care. Uh, but killing a person is another thing. That takes this that's to right. a whole different level. That's right. And even if, even if the person doesn't end up dying, we had a stabbing in Hamilton with a kid charged yeah. in this one. Um, you know, I, again, I, I come to the point of, you're right, if you shoplift something, I mean, many people listening have probably shoplifted something in their youth. And, and realistically, you know, could some people have maybe not realized the gravity or the seriousness of it? Yeah, I, I suspect that's probably the case. And so, you know, when you're a kid doing something stupid, you don't want that hanging over your record and your life forever. But this is, to me... When you get to the point where it's what, you, what you're talking about, where it's where it's a something where you're killing someone or trying to or doing horrible things, yeah, ah, man, I, I just I I don't know where and when we reconsider. And I know you can, like in our rules, you could charge them as an adult. Just a question of should we be doing this more in these egregious cases? All right, it's all coming up on the Scott Radley Show right after the six o'clock news. Scott, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. I will, and for the next two hours, we'll have a great connection. Just, you know, just for clarity. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. We're not worried about it. Thanks, pal. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. Always appreciate it. Thanks to Diana and Will and Tom for helping out. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. So much for going out tonight. If I drive in this fog, I'm guaranteed to forget where the road is and have to do guesswork on the road or as I like to call it, driving in Toronto. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. (laughs) And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid.
<laughs> For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.